I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined. Over 20 years ago, the McIlvains lost their son Bobby in the 9-11 World Trade Center attacks. Their loss and pain was unfathomable. And for one close family friend, it was also a chance to contemplate what grief really means. He still cries almost immediately if you bring up Bobby. Helen has moved around her grief, but it is still there. It's, it's like it's in her purse. She always carries it with her. So how do we process grief? Is there a right or a wrong way? And why is it so hard to stop mourning for someone we love? You're at the top of a mountain and you've each got a broken leg, so you can't help the other one down. You've each got to find your own way down the mountain. That, you know, you really are going to do it in your own idiosyncratic style. The story of the McIlvains and the complexities of grief, loss, memory, and love with Pulitzer Prize-winning author Jennifer Sr. That's coming up on Life Examined. Over 20 years ago, Bobby McIlvain died in the World Trade Center attacks of 9-11. He was just 26. He'd taken an elevator to Windows on the World, a restaurant in a building he seldom had a reason to go to, for a media relations job he'd held for just two months. Bobby, by all accounts, was one of a kind. Outgoing, intelligent, tall, handsome, popular. Privately, he was introspective, writing diaries for years, jotting down his thoughts on life, girls, whatever came to mind. Helen and Bobby Sr., that's Bobby's parents, his brother Jeff, and soon-to-be fiancé Jen, struggle to make sense of his senseless, catastrophic death. They each spun off in different directions, grasping for hope, comfort, a memory, a word that would help fill the massive void that was left in their lives. For family friend Jennifer Sr., their story inspired a broader contemplation on love and loss— a moving personal story and insight into how the long reach of grief impacted all their lives in very different ways. Jennifer Sr.'s essay, 20 Years Gone, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 2022 for feature writing, has been published into a book, which is called On Grief, Love, Loss, Memory. Sr. is a staff writer at The Atlantic, and she joins me now. Jennifer Sr., welcome back to Life Examined. It's great to have you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I, I want to hear about your connection to this book and, and the McIlvains. Um, it's this is a story about grief and of a family, but but also, I mean, your connection to it is also very real and raw. Maybe you can set the stage for us and talk about how how you even got involved in this to begin with. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right, and it's unlike anything I've ever done before. Um, <laughs> my connection is really close. Um, my brother was Bobby McIlvain's roommate in both college and then when they were young men out of college, living in New York City, which is totally unaffordable. Um, they got a two bedroom apartment right after school. So they lived together four years in college, four years um, in their 20s. And then Bobby left for work on September 11th, 2001 and never came home. Hmm. And so I knew the McIlvain family. I knew him. I knew them because they, you know, I would see them at college events. I saw them at graduation. I think the back of my head is in one of their family graduation photos, mm. you know, while we're all wandering around in the graduation tent. Bobby would, I would see him just because he was my brother's roommate. So if I visited, I would see him. Um, my parents would sometimes take all of us out to dinner. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I had, and I, I stayed over at my brother's dorm a couple of times just to hang out with him. Um, and so I knew Bobby that way. I mean, I, there are all sorts of ways. And now, of course, we have a very deep connection to the McIlvain family. I, I see his mother in particular all the time. She visits my mom, comes into the city, comes, you know, visits her in Florida, all sorts of stuff. So, mm. Yeah. yeah. Maybe you could tell us what Bobby was like. Who was he? What was it like to be with him? How would you describe him? Oh, my God. He was this miracle of self-invention. He was unlike anybody in his family in that, um, you know, his parents went to state schools in, uh, in Pennsylvania. They were solid. You know, they came from working class uh, stock, and they were working class themselves. They, they were both teachers. Um, they are both. Well, no, they were. They're retired. Um, Bobby, on the other hand, it, it was almost like he was like launched into the world as if from a slingshot. You know, he was this mm-hmm. 
highly vectored personality. Um, he was very charismatic, very athletic, um, such a good basketball player that he wound up in high school playing against a young Kobe Bryant, yeah. <laughs> who also came of age in Philly. And um, he managed to score like 16 points off of Kobe and his teammates mm. when he was young. An, a really serious scholar, a great big brain, very provocative, very imaginative. He got the attention of Toni Morrison when he was at Princeton. Um, and she wrote the family, I guess not one, but two condolence notes because she remembered him so well. Wow. Um, yeah, and one included a paper that she wrote for him. I mean, she was just very impressed with it. Yeah. You know, he was really interested in African-American studies. He, he had this kind of wide-ranging intellect. You know, he wanted to be a writer, then discovered it didn't make any money. So he like left New York Publishing and went into corporate PR so that he could make some money. I mean, he was just, he, he was just a dazzling, charming guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and tragically, he, he's somebody that was lost on September 11th. I mean, do you, do we know much about what took him into that building? What were his last days like? Yeah. Uh, well, we actually, what is so upsetting to everyone who, you know, lost somebody on September 11th is that uh, with the exceptions of the firefighters and the cops who can kind of vouch for each other's whereabouts, if, if their colleagues survived, a lot of the families of the dead don't really know what the last moments of their loved ones were like. Mm. You know, they may know if they were trapped at the top of a building, which is just unimaginable and like yeah. you can't even go there in some ways. Um, with Bobby, we have a, a little bit more information um, here's the deal. He, he didn't work in the World Trade Center. He worked in corporate PR for Merrill Lynch after having spent two years in book publishing. And he was on his second month or maybe his third month on the job. And a colleague who was much more clumsily low tech needed some help with his PowerPoint presentation. And Bobby went to Windows on the World early that morning. They were having a conference to help him set up. But he must have, this colleague was was set to present at 8.40. And he must have gone in early and maybe grabbed breakfast and schmoozed and heard the keynote or not, you know, it just helped set this guy up, but then left. And the way that you know that he left is that everybody who was in Windows on the World was obviously trapped up there. Yeah. We learned that later. But Bobby's body was found at the periphery of the site. So what that means is that he left before 840 probably, had made it all the way down to the bottom of the building and had made it all the way to the periphery of the site. They found his body completely intact besides his head. Hmm. So he was probably hit in the head with flying debris and probably burning debris because there were some burns on his body that were described in the medical examiner's report. Um, and so... You can kind of tell a story, but, you know, do we know if he made small talk with a guy at a coffee, you know, at a coffee cart and bought himself something? Do, do we know what he was doing or if he heard a loud noise and heard the plane hit and turned and looked? We don't. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't know any of that kind of detail or who last saw him yeah. or who he made conversation with or whether he was running or nothing like that. So clearly this must have impacted you, I mean, and your brother and, and the fact that you were close to their family. But then to me, there's this also big question of you as a writer, when did you think that this would be something you'd even entertain writing about, right? I'd imagine the lines yeah. here between professional and personal must have been really deeply interwoven. Yeah, yeah, they were. Um, I wrote about this actually that Friday maybe, and I guess it was that Thursday night I started writing, we had gotten confirmation. And I guess they, they had come back from the morgue that Thursday night, I think. And my parents had people over to their apartment. And I wrote a quick 900 words or 1000 words about Bobby, but just because I, I don't know if you were a journalist then or what you were doing then but everyone in new york was writing everything and we were also adrenalized so yeah. i wrote something very quickly that night 
just about my brother's experience, the perspective of losing his closest friend, and from the McIlvains to the extent that they were able to talk. I also had a conversation with Bobby's almost fiance, and I have almost no memory of it. Her name was also Jen. Hmm. Um, but she was at my parents' apartment, and she later reminded me of it. It was all kind of a blur. Um, but I knew that I was going to write that. Anybody who had an immediate connection sort of had an obligation, I think, to convey to the world what this was like. I did not know that I was going to be writing 13,500 words about it until the anniversary. But boy, did I think a lot about the family and what has happened to them since, because it's such a yarn what has happened to them since. And it's not just about like kind of all the idiosyncrasies of grieving. It's about the very specific trajectories that everybody in the family took and about a missing diary and about the different ways that the McIlvains mourned as a couple. And I always thought that it would be a story worth telling, but mm. I think I had to wait for the anniversary right, to feel comfortable doing that. And, and I had to wait for a lot of time to go by. Well, I mean, grief is, you know, I, I've spent time working as a grief counselor and it's it's mysterious in the way that people process it and sit with it. And that's to me so much of what this book is about. You look at the parents, the fiance, brother, that, um, you know, this is a story about how we deal with the things that are most precious to us when they're suddenly gone. And so I, I know we could probably spend three hours going through this whole book, but I, I, and I don't want to truncate any of the story, but maybe you can kind of bring us into the parents, Bob and Helen, and we'll spend some time with Jen, but talk about how the story begins to unfold in terms of the ways in which these individuals were grieving um, Bobby. Sure. Okay, so um, one of the plot points of the book, which figures into the way Helen grieved, this is the is mother. That, yeah. Yes. Is that um, Bobby was a, an avid diarist. Hmm. He, he also was an aspiring novelist. He was doing that on the side. And he kept lots of diaries. And when he died, his final diary was sitting on his desk. And his father was in such a fugue state as he was cleaning out his apartment that Bobby's almost fiance, Jen, when she saw this diary, she was with him. She said, can I have this? And he said, sure. Because what she noticed was that her name was all over this diary. Mm. Makes sense. I mean, they were dating. He was on the verge of proposing. And she really wanted it. You know, uh, Bobby's father said, of course, take this diary. You know, maybe there'll be good, there'll be something in there that you can use for the eulogy. He wasn't really thinking. Yeah. When Helen heard this, she got very upset, demanding to know how it was that Bobby's father could give away sort of her, her son's final words. Mm. Um, this was a chance to hear his voice one more time, to be in conversation with him in a funny way, or at least to hear him. And this was a source of enormous tension. And she became very preoccupied with this diary and getting it back and jen wouldn't give it back i'll table that for now there were reasons but just as a matter of like how his parents grieved this became a source of real not obsession but it became a real preoccupation of helen's mm. and this often happens when someone dies people um it's like a form of synecdoche it's like something standing in for something else right like where you've got this diary standing in for Bobby, yes, and also any parent of a grieving—I'm sorry, of a, of a dead child—any grieving parent will say that you want every last molecule of what has belonged to that child because you will get nothing less left. You know, nothing else. There's nothing left. Hmm. Um, you have no more to expect. So she really wanted that, and that became. Um, something she talked about with her grieving group, she called it her limping group, for years. Mm. But in everyday life, she didn't want to be pitied. She really bottled up her grief. She didn't go to the supermarket she ordinarily shopped at for years, because she didn't want to run into people she knew, because she didn't want them pitying her. 
She didn't want to make awkward conversation. She didn't want to be in the even more awkward and uncomfortable position of having to console them, watch them break down. It was challenging for her. She didn't want to be a victim. Mm -hmm. And she discovered about 10 years later that she was sort of marinating in her own anger and that she hadn't really worked through her grief in a way that was satisfying to her, that she'd really become rather embittered. Bobby's father, total opposite direction and a very obscure direction in the following sense. First of all, I mean, he, he cried a lot. He cried often. He wanted to talk all the time about September 11th. He immediately, he immediately became very political. He started marching against, you know, all the wars, whether it was the, um, whether it was even the uh, campaign in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. which seemed much less controversial at the time, certainly Iraq. But then eventually he also became enmeshed in conspiracy theories. Okay. He decided that the government did it, that it was an inside job. He needed this extra narrative. And he started treating 9-11 like it was a cold case, like it was a murder to be solved. And this was of no interest to his wife. She wanted to be as far away from September 11th as possible. So here you have this couple where one half of the couple is waking up every morning and it's always September 12th. Right. There's always murder to be solved. He's always got to be um, speaking at conferences, talking to other people who think like him, other people who are truthers. And then there's Helen who wants to never think about September 11th ever again, but is very obsessed with this diary, right? Mm -hmm. Wants to read his, her son's final words and is taking refuge in a very small group of friends who have all lost kids, finds other women in the community who've done it, but otherwise wants to lead a life that is quite apart from her personal tragedy. Right. So two wildly disparate ways of handling grief. Mm. And both within the range, I think of what you might find, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're, they both make sense. I mean, they both seem very possible to me, to an outsider. Oh, absolutely. I mean, where you want to blame one, you want to blame the government because otherwise it's senseless. And the other is you don't ever want to think about it. You want to get on with your life and only talk about it with the people who aren't going to clumsily screw up. Mm. And in both cases, I mean, what I'm sitting with hearing this story is that the death became central to how their lives would unfold after, but just as you mentioned, in such different ways. One is kind of a refusal of belief or a disregard of perhaps the reality of what happened. And one is that this death was going to become everything suddenly. It would become the reason to wake up and fight and believe and search. And that uh, they're, I mean, vastly different approaches, as you mentioned. Yes. I don't, I, Helen was not in denial. Mm. She was, it wasn't a refusal. It was just, she, she was, um, she did, she refused to become a victim. Yeah. She didn't want to talk about it with anyone who wasn't close and she was very cautious because so many people would say the wrong things, always with the best of intentions. But they would say things to her like, I was just holding my child the other night, and I realized that was something you would never have again. And it made me cry. Mm -hmm. Now, how is this going to be helpful to her? I mean, it was it's extremely well-meaning. You, you understand why somebody said it, you know, that they were suddenly overcome with this realization or with the scale of, you know, Helen's loss, but it doesn't help Helen. And Helen wanted to minimize those kinds of interactions, um, which you can understand. Um, but yes, I mean, just within a couple, I mean, try navigating that. I mean, I, I'm always amazed, like, you know, you read all these stories about how do you get along with your Trump-loving uncle, you know, at Thanksgiving, but can you imagine living within that marriage where they are living two totally different versions of grief? Mm -hmm. I mean, what bereavement looks like to each of them and how they want to 
work this out yeah. is so different. You write a bit about what it means for parents to lose a child. And and I wonder if, if anything came out of that in terms of understanding, are there differences in how a mother grieves or a father grieves, or is it, for what we know, the same thing? Um, did you, I, what you think I, about? I don't, I don't have any, I can't generalize from these two. Mm-hmm. Um, I really couldn't. Um, I think that the, the one gendered difference I might feel comfortable venturing is that Helen had this very tight knit group of friends. Women tend to have, you know, a lot, their friendships tend to be a little more intimate. Mm. They tend to be more self-disclosing. She very quickly found this group of women in her community and she had an outlet. And I often wonder if one of the reasons that Bob turned to the internet and to conspiracy theories is that he once told me that his male friends didn't ask, that his male friends were quite uncomfortable with this. And I don't think he had as many, you know, I think like most men, you know, his wife was his best friend. And like most women, Helen had a lot of other friends besides her husband, you know. Um, And I think that he found fellowship with these truthers. Hmm. It gave him a grieving community. So that's one gendered difference I would feel comfortable talking about. And they had a different relationship to Bobby. I mean, Bob Sr. was very sporty and did lots of sporty things with Bobby and went to all of his games. And Bobby also had like a side of him that loved to go shopping and was loved to talk about his feelings and about girlfriends and that he all did and that he did with his mom. So, you know, you have a different relationship with your child, you know, no matter who you are. One thing you might appreciate as a grief counselor is something that a grief counselor told them early on. Hmm which I think about, which is um, you're all grieving. The way you have to think about this is you're at the top of a mountain and you've each got a broken leg. So you can't help the other one down. You've each got to find your own way down the mountain. Hmm. And it's a great metaphor in that it shows that, you know, you really are going to do it in your own idiosyncratic style. When I mentioned this to somebody else who studies grief for a living, she did say to me, it is a good metaphor, but I object to one part of it. Some people never get down the mountain. Like, they don't even want to. Mm. And I think there's a case to be made that Bob Sr. doesn't want to. Mm. Why do you think he, he wouldn't want to? Okay, so that's a, a deceptively good question, and it's a simple question. But why wouldn't you want to? I mean, it's excruciating to remain in your grief. Yeah. But I think, so here are the, the reasons that I can think of. I mean, a statement that is mistakenly attributed to Freud, and he said a version of it, he wrote a version of it in a letter to a grieving colleague because Freud had lost a child who, like Bobby, was 26. He wrote to this effect that grieving is another form of loving. Mm. So if you keep grieving, you keep loving, and you keep loving with the same intensity. And I do think that there is a fear among those who grieve that you're going to forget, you know, the dead abandon you, and then you suddenly abandon the dead after a number of years. And that's very upset to abandon the dead. You don't want to abandon those you love. Mm -hmm. It feels like a form of betrayal. And I think that Bobby, I think Bob Sr. wanted to keep Bobby close. And I think in grieving every day, he got to hold him close. Yeah. Um, I think that's really the main reason. You know, there's a very famous passage in, in Joan Didion's Year of Magical Thinking where she describes, she's mourning the loss of her husband. And yeah. she talks about, you know, every day she would cross a certain street and I, I think I have this generally, right? That she would, every day she'd cross the street and she'd think about her husband, right? And that happens for a long, long time. And then one day she crosses the street and doesn't think about him and almost falls into this really heavy state of sadness. Why? Because it feels as if she's starting to forget her husband. She's beginning right. to let go. She's beginning to not keep him as close or keep him as alive as she did before when she thought about him every day. And I think the problem with those that are grieving is you don't want to let go, 
right? And this is what's happening, I think, just the way you're describing it. I think Jeff said to me at some point, something along, I mean, it wasn't exactly that, but, and I remember that part of the book. I'm so glad you reminded me. I wonder if I should have put that in. Um, but Jeff, Bobby's brother said to me that there were times when he would trade his current well-being for the pain that he felt in those days, weeks, months, years after, just so that in, in exchange for having a, a more vivid memory of Bobby, mm. that it alarms him that, you know, things are starting to drift away, the sound of his voice, what it was like to be around him, you know, that it's much less frequent that Bobby visits him in his dreams, but he loves it when he sees him there. Mm-hmm. You know, he gets to visit in a way. And just to see him in a warmer hue rather than a cooler one, he would he would trade it for the pain sometimes, he told me. And I think it speaks to that same thing. Well, I, I, I want to get to another person who you mentioned in the beginning. This is Jen, the fiancé. And she ended up, you know, taking possession of the final journal. And I, and I wonder if you could tell us, where did she go on her grieving journey? So she had already lost her mother that year. So this was a double blow. Mm. And so she always thought, well, she could lose her mother. She was young to lose her mother. You know, she was 26 or seven. And um, she assumed Bobby would get her through it because she didn't have a great relationship with her father. It was prone to rages, only narrowly rational. She was really close to her mother. And she thought, as long as Bobby is here, I will have a, my rock steady, you know, my somebody to talk to. And then suddenly he was gone. Mm. And I think she came from a Midwestern cohort of girls who were already getting married and having kids. And she felt suddenly like, wait a minute, my whole life, I'm never going to find somebody. I think she thought that this was her window and that like the window was gone. I think she saw a life of solitude. I think she thought she was really going to be alone. She had this moment of actually looking at a comb of Bobby's in her house and um, looking at a strand of hair and wondering whether she could somehow extract the DNA and get pregnant from it. Yeah. I mean, it, it, she, her mind was going to all kinds of places. She still sometimes thinks about Bobby. She was very honest about this, you know, at moments when she's arguing with her husband or things aren't going quite right. She'll wonder what it would have been like if she'd been married to Bobby instead. And it turns out she had a really good reason for wanting to hang on to that journal. And it was one that I hadn't considered. I I had sort of taken Helen's side and thought, how dare she? Hmm. Who on earth would deprive a mother of of this journal? It, It was only when speaking to her did I sort of understand the importance of that journal to her and seeing the journal which I finally do, you know, um, mm. and what the astonishing stuff that was in there. But her journey, you know, she did eventually, it's different from a parent. You can't replace, I mean, you can't replace, you know, when you're in your 50s, I mean, you can't replace a child, period. You can't sure. do it. You can't replace, no person is replaceable. But I think it's a little different. Like you can find a different spouse. You can't find a different son. You can't do it. Mm. And and Jen did, but I am, you know, one thing that was interesting about Jen, because she didn't have a ring on her finger. Well, she did. Bobby had bought the ring, but he hadn't proposed. Because she wasn't officially his fiance, she didn't have any official standing. Mm-hmm. So, like, she didn't have the same claim to his things that the family did. You know, people, she didn't have that same privileged status as a mourner. And I often wonder about whether... certain rights of closure were denied her Mm -hmm. for that reason. Not that one of her has closure. I think that's sort of a myth and far too tidy. But um, I think certain rituals that could have been helpful to her were not available. What strikes me about her, her kind of situation and her relationship in this grief is that what she's losing is not just 
you know, a partner, a future husband, but it's really a future. Un- exactly. It's it's exactly. an it's an unknowable future in which she could have placed her dreams, her future, a family, a life that would have gone on for decades, and then that is suddenly just snatched and gone. Yes, you're saying this better than I did, or perhaps as I should have. She was mourning her future. They were mourning the past mm. as well as the future. His parents were mourning. I mean, the boy that they'd had, she was mourning the life that she was envisioning that was going to be for what she hoped would be the next 60 odd years, you know? Um, and of course, the McElveins were mourning that too. The grandchildren, the, you know, the, the continued, but it's different with a, an adult child. But yes, she had a whole vision for what her life was going to look like, what their life was going to yeah. look like. And it was just violently, abruptly, absurdly cut off. And if you're just joining us, this is Life Examined on KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian. And my guest this hour is Jennifer Sr., Pulitzer Prize-winning writer for The Atlantic and the author of On Grief, Love, Loss, and Memory, which looks at the death of Bobby McIlvain in the 9-11 tragedy. We'd love to hear what your experiences are with grief and loss. How do you find that grief manifests? Is it in the different countless ways that Jennifer Sr. describes? Do any of the subjects like Bobby Sr. or Helen resonate with you? And finally, were there any books that helped you get through the pain? Please share it with our Facebook community. You can find the link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. We'll be back with Jennifer Sr. for part two of our interview. This is Life Examined on KCRW. Stay close. We'll be back after this short break. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Jennifer Sr., Pulitzer Prize-winning writer for The Atlantic and author of On Grief, Love, Loss, Memory, describe how distraught Helen McElvain was to not have her son's final diary. In the days following Bobby's death, Helen's husband, Bobby Sr., had allowed Jen, Bobby's then-girlfriend, to take the diary, and when asked for it, she later refused to return it. Jen may well have been looking for some part of Bobby to hold on to, a future life, marriage, and children. For Helen, the diary represented a part of her son, words or thoughts, like one missing piece. As we rejoin the conversation, I ask Senior to expand on some of the theories on grieving. Is there a good way to grieve? What about the well-known theories by Kubler-Ross and the stages of grief? And finally, are the McIlvains ever able to free themselves from the loss of Bobby? Let's get back to the conversation. Isn't it interesting to think, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever had this thought or maybe maybe I'm just morose and depressed, who knows. But like, if I died, who would care, kind of, you know, like... Oh, well, I think about that a lot, sure. You know, and, I, and just as you tell the story, I think here's this one individual and this like constellation of grief that ripples out in all of these directions to me is almost this incredible message of like, wow, you know, we are each so vitally important in ways that we can't understand in our interpersonal relationships. Do you know what I mean? Oh, my God. Do I ever. And, I mean, Bobby, he said something really interesting in that diary that I finally recovered. I don't want to give too much away, but I'll Mm -hmm. give this much away. He actually said something so wise. He wrote, there are people I don't know yet who need me. Hmm. I mean, there are people you haven't met that are going to need you. Hmm. You know, I mean, right now we have a set of people who we know would mourn us if we were abruptly vanished from this earth. But there are also people in the future who will, assuming we're lucky enough to live another week, month, year, decade, 
five decades, whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm also just struck about the kind of mysteriousness of this journal, like, and, and, you know, just very personally, when my mother died of cancer, she left behind, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 journals, you know, and, and my sisters and I would, we have these boxes and we look at them and we have an open conversation of what do we do with these? You know, I mean, what, what is the role of us going into this very personal place in our mother's life and reading these things. Is that, is that even the right thing for us to do? Wasn't that her place where she could be private? And I, I don't like, I don't have an answer here, but I sit with this question a lot and I, and I wonder how you would make sense of it as well. You are not the only one to sit with that question. Helen had a number of old diaries of Bobby's from when he was younger and lots of legal pads that had journal entries. They were functionally diaries. She had tons of them. And she couldn't bring herself to look at them for years, even though she was fixated on getting this last one. It's so interesting. Hmm. Question is whether she ever would have read it for exactly the reason that you say, and she had the best metaphor for it. She said, it just would have felt to her like she was going into his room without knocking. Mm. It was such a good metaphor. She said like she just, it felt like a violation, but she was of course torn because it's fresh conversation. It's hearing the voice of someone you love and it's stuff that you haven't necessarily heard them say. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, I'm really curious to hear what you ultimately decided about your own mom. Yeah. I think the question remains open with myself and my two sisters. I think there's been moments maybe that we've almost cracked one or two, but the vast majority of them remain closed. And um, and our mother was an intensely private, there was a part of her that was very private and almost inaccessible at times. And I think that you know, death is is also just cloaked in this mystery of somebody suddenly being gone and you want to know what their final thoughts are and none of it makes sense. And I, it's like all of this is just so overwhelming in a way when you're sitting with these things. And I, I, I take it that that's, that's kind of what your story is too with this journal and these people. And so I don't, I don't have an answer, you know? I mean, they sit well, vacant, they sit quietly. And and if your mother was already kind of a sphinx, if she was already very private, I mean, then I could see it feeling like double the violation. Oh, yeah. It may have been slightly easier in Bobby's case in the sense that he was this very gregarious extrovert Mm. and highly charismatic. So because he was kind of an open book, this may have been a book that they felt like they could open, you know, in some sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think it was also just too painful for them to really look at them. A lot of his diary, the other thing that you will find about diaries, I mean, they gave me full access. So I looked uh, at all of these diaries yeah. and I felt that sense of like, oh my God, am I doing the wrong thing? But on the other hand, I thought, well, I'm a journalist, so I could at least think, justify this as fact finding. And if I find something that's really beautiful, what if he's written amazing things about his family, I can pass them along right. and I did. I found all these beautiful things that he'd written about the McIlvains. And whenever I found anything that was flattering or wonderful about any of them, I would copy it down and send it to them and it would make them so happy. And then there were things that were kind of private that I thought, well, you know, it's good that they don't see this and that they're not looking, <laughs> you know, mm. but um, it, it was, I was also struck by how much of it is just kind of pedestrian. Why Exactly. You know, like so, right. you're, you're not getting what you think you're going to get. It's not something magical where the page suddenly glows. Right. I wonder where you kind of sit with all of this now, right? You've had an opportunity to really follow these individual lives. You've seen where they are. You've had access to these journals. You've, you know, you've had this really intimate and journalistic view of this and kind of where, where do you feel like you are now with putting the story out there and, and, you know, what, what you think it's saying. I'm just, I'm curious. Well, I mean, I feel a little bit more, I, I, I tend, most of the stories I do, I like, they have some personal dimension, they have some personal meaning, unless they are political stories where I'm told to go write about 
you know, you know, Obama or Clinton or, you know, I, I never interviewed Trump, but, you know, sure. Steve Bannon, whatever. I mean, those have, the, there's no personal resonance. Most stories have some personal resonance. This one has lots and lots of personal resonances to me. And I feel like it's the most useful thing I've ever written hmm. for, to other people. I feel like it's the only thing that I would be evangelical about. Like, I never tell people to go read my work. I never care if my friends miss a story of mine or my parents or, you know, whatever. My brother says, oh, my God, you wrote that? I, I missed it, you know, and I'm always like, ah, don't worry about it. This is something where I feel like, oh, you might feel, you might feel less alone if you read this or mm -hmm. less freakish in your grief or less ashamed about the way that you grieve. I mean, it's, it's one of the only times I've tr truly felt in my life like I, I did a very good deed finally, you know, I mean, <laughs> I often yeah. feel like I do reasonably good deeds with with my pieces by exposing things or helping people identify w with a certain feeling, but I, I, it's a matter of pure indifference at the end of the day, whether anybody reads something of mine. I, I'm not, to my amazement, sort of, I'm, 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 I'm more invested in this, um, stubbornly, I, I guess. Um, I also feel like uh, there was some good in that the McIlvains have always felt some guilt that they don't have annual golf tournaments or walkathons or no. whatever for, on mm -hmm. Bobby's behalf. They're not rich people. They don't run. They don't feel comfortable ask, hitting up their friends for money or they're not showy people. So I feel like I at least wrote something that you know they can point to, so they don't have to tell their story. And his name is on people's lips, so that's good. Mm. Um, it, it did haunt me for a long time. I have only one child, so it was hard not to read, not to write this story and not to think about it since, and not to suddenly be overcome with the thought that I don't know if I would be able to survive it if my one and only child died. You know, it, it just, you know, they had another reason to live, which is they have, you know, they have two kids, you know, and now they have four grandkids, you know, um, Jeff went on to have four kids of his own. Um, and I don't think he ever would have had such a big family, you know, if this hadn't happened to him. Mm. Um, so, I mean, it it would hit, sometimes hit me very profoundly, you know, I would think, oh my God, I could I survive that grief? You know, could I do it? Yeah. You know, I mean, when I get really morose and get very dark. No, of course, of course. And no, I mean, it must be also just amazing for you. I mean, 20 years on now, you had known a lot of these people before and you know them now. And I know this is a, a big question, but like you've really now seen the way that grief can potentially utterly alter a set of lives around you, right? And I have to say, it taught me something about marriage. It was mm -hmm. inspiring. The way that these two are still married and frankly, the way that Helen kind of tolerates a lot of... um kind of extreme behaviors from her husband, right? Like embracing kind of an extreme point of view, flying all over the world to attend conferences about, you know, how 9-11 was an inside job, all these things. I mean, and still find ways to really love him and to see what is good in him and to see this as an act of love, you know, to not look at it as an act of kookiness or anger, but as an act of um, just, uh, you know, ferocious loyalty and um, profound adoration for his son is really something to me. Um, and that they've managed to navigate this. I'm kind of in awe, mm. you know, and Jeff too, I mean, 20 years on, you know, I mean, he lost his one and only sibling. And he made this very mature decision as I think a 20 God, how old must he have been? 22. At 22, he thought to himself, if I don't lead a good life, Bobby would be really upset. Mm -hmm. I have to lead a good life. Mm -hmm. I have to make sure I lead a good life. And it's one thing to have that conscious thought, but it is another thing to go and actually do it. And he grieved for a, a long time, really struggled you know, and then found an amazing woman. He's now a beloved teacher and track coach. You know, he's a high school bio teacher and track coach. And 
he had these four kids. He's this super duper involved family guy. He did it. He created a great life. Mm -hmm. And I think this poses this kind of large amorphous question, which is, you know, does grief resolve? Right? Is there such a thing as you move on and things kind of go back to normal? And I, how did you find that question plays out in this book? Yeah, it's so, and it's one of the myths that grief does resolve, right? Whereas I think for most people, what you do is you bolt your new reality onto your old one. That's what you really do. Um, and it's still the underlayer. I think for Bob Sr., his grief is very much unresolved. He still cries almost immediately if you bring up Bobby. He cries all the time. He, they joke about it in the family, how much he cries. It's this very charming and funny kind of family, running family thing that Bob Sr. is always crying, but underneath that is something so painful and so hard. Um, so his grief is very accessible. It lives right on the surface. Um, I think that Helen has moved around her grief, but it is still there. It's, it's like, it's in her purse, you know, um, she always carries it with her and she thinks about Bobby as being here. You know, she thinks she's become very spiritual and she has found a grief, a, a therapist who's very spiritual, who believes that we, we really can't see everything. And that's her way of sweeping Bobby into her life. It's not through looking at conspiracies and looking at the way that the government might have been involved in this and, you know, deciding that there was some kind of rational logic behind it, that the government did it, but accepting that the universe did something cruel, but deciding that we can't see where Bobby is, you know, mm. and that he might be right here. Right. Um, and, you know, Jeff... Jeff had most of his life to go, and he knew that. I mean, assuming nothing terrible happens. I mean, he's already, you know, almost doubled his life since the tragedy, since since September 11th. So he had to have a very different point of view, perspective. Um, and he, I don't know. I mean, they still talk about Bobby a lot in his house. Mm -hmm. He says, like, they, he, like, his kids all know who Uncle Bobby is his firstborn is named Bobby. So every mm -hmm. time he calls for his son, he's calling for his brother, Yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't know, what, do you call that resolved? Are you just imbuing it, you know, the next generation, you know, you're, you're doing the healthy thing. You're making sure that Bobby lives on and another Bobby. And I think one thing that you've managed to do so well in this book is, I, you know, you could have doubled the length of it to talk about the latest theories on grief or what do we know clinically? But I, I, and you told this to me before the interview that for you, perhaps what's more important than any of that are just stories, right? I think so. I think one story that's reasonably well told has enough in it because every death is complex. Mm -hmm. Every story about a death is layered. There's no boring stories about someone dying, mm -hmm. even if they die at a hundred. You know, there's just, there's no boring stories about someone dying. There are, and what the, what family dynamics ensue, I think everyone can find their own door into that story. Hmm. And I think that the books that have the kind of the grand unified field theories of grief, they wind off, they wind up being kind of wrong, you know, and then you're going, oh, am I grieving incorrectly? almost a tyranny knowing that like, oh, I'm not doing this sequentially. I'm not going through these right. five stages in this particular way. Does that yeah. make me an outlier? Oh, I'm not moving past my grief. Oh, I'm not achieving closure. Oh, I'm not, the, yeah, you know, I mean. Kubler-Ross models, for example. Yeah, yeah exactly, uh -huh. exactly. I mean, I think that theories are, are always interesting, but insufficient. Mm -hmm. That's really what I think. I think if you really want to get at the real kind of Theory, if you really want to learn about human motive and behavior and the untidiness of the human heart, you read a good novel or you read a, a real story. Mm -hmm. That's what you do. Well, we're just about out of time. And, and there was just this one phrase 
that would resurface in your book that I thought was really beautiful. It was life loves on. And I, I wonder if you could just talk about the significance in the book and maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yes. That phrase became the organizing motto for the McElvain family's grief. Um, it is tattooed on Bob Sr.'s right arm. It is engraved on a bracelet that Helen wears mm. all the time. Um, even the people in her um, limping group, as she calls it, the moms of kids who've died, that they, some of them use it as their tagline on their emails. Um, what is so interesting about that phrase, so they all attributed it to Bobby, yet no one could find it. Like, and they didn't know if it was in the journals, which they had this very ambivalent relationship with that we discussed, and they could barely read. They didn't know if it was, they didn't know where it came from. So I went on this mad hunt to find that phrase. And what I found about that phrase is very interesting. I won't spoil it for listeners. It wound up being very complicated what that phrase actually was. But what I think is so beautiful about it is, um, first of all, it, it perfectly encapsulates what the McElvains have tried to do, right? I mean, they now have these four grandkids. Life does love on. It loves on in the name, in, in, in Bobby Sr. I'm sorry, in Bobby Jr., um, and the three other children, grandchildren. Um, but it also uh, loves on in Jeff. It loves on in both of the McElveins. And Bobby, I mean, the deceased, he's the one who came up with this insight. Mm. He gave them the phrase that they could use to mourn him. It's kind of amazing mm. that it... it you know, that it, it, I mean, they assume it came from one of his journals and it kind of did, um, or the kind of phrase kind of did. Um, and, but these journals in this way were not just archival, they were a crystal ball, right? They were um, a way to, they, they provided a roadmap for the family to mourn Bobby in the future. Well, my guest has been Jennifer Sr., author of On Grief, Love, Lost Memory, which won the 22 Pulitzer Prize in feature writing when it was originally published in The Atlantic under the name 20 Years Gone. Jennifer, thank you again for the time and, and this really wonderful conversation. It has been such a pleasure. Thank you for the really thoughtful questions. All right, that's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.